0: I'm Yamoka Rodriguez, and this is the Brand Therapist Podcast, where we come together and dive deep into the psychology of branding. We live in a new era that asks us to step up and show our individuality, learn what makes us unique and different in this world. Let's open the door to possibilities so you can win in business, life, and relationships, because everything starts with you. Hello, I'm so excited to have you, Andre, and we'll talk all about you in just a second. Thank you for being on the Brand Therapist podcast, and we'll talk a little bit more (laughs) about what that actually means. So we can't go without asking the question that every therapist asks, which is, tell me a story about your childhood and how it helped you on this journey of who you are today.
1: There's one thing I remember very specifically that sort of helps me understand how I've sort of always been this way, particularly as it relates to music. I grew up in Smoketown neighborhood here in Louisville, and I live on Jackson Street between Caldwell and Breckenridge. And then the next major street up is Broadway. One street over to the west is Preston. So on Preston and Broadway, which is like three blocks away, there was a record store called Don Records. And when I was a kid, I guess you wouldn't, parents would probably cringe at this now, but my parents used to let me walk to that record store by myself. I was like seven years old. I could go up there and hang out because I knew the guy who owned the record stuff. So I would go in there and he'd play stuff for me. And so I saved up my money. I guess albums were probably $5 at the time. And I bought Stevie Wonder's album, Inner Vision. So this would have been in 1972. And I would have been six years old. So I bought that record for myself with my own money that I had gotten for my birthday or something like that. So I remember that vividly buying that record and it being my record and we had our own little record player and stuff so when people would listen to it i'm like that's my record you know uh <laughs> that you all listen to i bought that with my own money and i've always had this relationship with music that started in my earliest memory when i was six i mean i must have loved it before then very much i don't remember much about being younger than six But that is my first vivid memory of my uh, interaction with music is that I went and bought that record and listened to it over and over and over
0: again. Oh, that's so beautiful. We're going to talk about your music career in a second, but I want to ask you a little bit about what you do today. Tell us what you do today and how you're influencing the community.
1: Well, I am fortunate to be the president and CEO of the Fund for the Arts here in Louisville, Kentucky. We are a United Arts Fund. We're one of the oldest United Arts Funds in the country in that we raise money for arts organizations, arts artists and arts organizations in the city. We, we started in 1949 and coming upon our 75th anniversary. And In this role, I get an opportunity to, you know, I say I'm fortunate to wake up every morning to move the needle on something that I care so much about because the arts is so much an integral part of who we are. We at the Fund for the Arts, we believe that art is a right, not a privilege, because art is one of the most fundamental expressions of the human condition. And whether we realize it or not, all human beings from the beginning of time create and consume art every day. We all create art, whether we we sing in the shower or singing in the car. Or we do a little dance on the way down the street or we doodle in the corner or, or you know, you put your ensemble together. I'm, I pick my blues out this morning to match one another. That's my artistic expression of who I am. And, and we consume art. We can't get away from art. I mean, as, as art, you got those books and a little uh, sculpture behind you, hold your books, that's art. I've got art behind me where, you know, we hear music every day. So in doing that, we want to make sure that not only as we raise money to help arts institutions, but we want to create an awareness around the city that we are all artists. And we have a campaign called I Am an Artist, which uh, a person who you know very well is very instrumental. It's, <laughs> it's you, personally, <laughs> that's helping us to get that campaign off the ground and, and getting things going, because we want everybody in the city to self-identify as an artist. So just starting with that individual and getting the chance to help people engage and see their own art is something I didn't necessarily see when I took this job. but Having an opportunity to do that is just one of the best experiences of my professional career.
0: Oh, I love that. So talking about you and this art and all these things, what would you say is your personal brand?
1: Well, uh, I got a couple of different sort of personal brands. As a personal brand in terms of how you look. When I was a kid, I won best dressed in middle school and in high school. Wow. But what's really interesting, and is the reason I did that, is because being a young black male, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't judged by the way that people would see me and make some preconceived ideas about who I was and who I wasn't. So, I put on this sort of exterior shell. So, I mean, when I was in high school, I wore a shirt and tie to school every day, and it wasn't required. And I carried a briefcase, so it was like I was looking this part of, uh, you know, of this intellectual guy. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized that I didn't need that in order to portray who I am and what I'm about. You know, it's been a while since I've worked in an office environment. I I was the CEO of the August Wilson Center for African American Culture in Pittsburgh from 2010 to 2012. But before then, I had, I left Jazz and Lincoln Center in 2006. So I had a six year period and then I had a little two year period where I was working. But then since 2012, I hadn't been in office till 2020. So in essence, like 14, you know, wow. only two years out of the last 14 years had I been working in a traditional environment. And in this role, which is a very powerful position in the city, I had to really grapple with how am I going to dress for this part? Am I going to wear a suit? When I was uh, dressing the part, I had Canali suits, Robert Talbot shirts, Allen Edmonds shoes. I had it all down the cufflinks, the whole nine. But I was like, you know what? I gave away all my suits. I'm not doing that anymore when I left the August Wilson Center. So I said, what is my brand? How is it that I want people to see me? And so for the past few years, I've been wearing Lululemon almost exclusively. I just love that duality of what Lululemon is. It's like with Lululemon, where you can go play a game of basketball (laughs) and sweat and then, you know, cool off and it'll, it'll, it's all wicking. So, you know, you won't stink or you won't get the stains and you go into a meeting. And so I uh, sort of,
0: right?
1: right. So this athleisure wear became sort of my signature brand. I wear pretty much, I wear sneakers very, so it's very colorful, very relaxed, sort of an athletic, colorful, sneaker, relaxed way. So I wanted to make sure that when people saw me that they didn't feel sort of intimidated by here's the guy in the suit looking to represent the arts, But I also wanted the way that i dress and I look in a colorful way to be an artistic expression. So I like to think that my brand is one of colorfulness that is an expression of art, of creativity, of, of who I am as an individual.
0: What I love about this is that you actually thought through <laughs> it very, very consciously. So, tell me about that. I think that's what you were going to say.
1: I haven't worn jeans. It's funny because my last name is Guest. Maybe I should wear guest jeans, but I haven't worn jeans in maybe seven or eight years because I just started wearing Lululemon all the time. The, the great thing about Lululemon, they feel better than jeans. But like I said, there's this duality about them. You don't know if they're slacks that you would wear with a suit or or whether they're like sweatpants. Like I have a pair of ones that are waistband, not the kind you button up, but you have the drawstrings that look like I could wear them with a suit. But I wore those pants every day during the pandemic and I'm wearing them now. And it looks like they're brand new. And so I love the quality of the little lemon. But I, you know, I thought about that. I'm, I need to be comfortable. I need to be comfortable in what it is I'm doing, but I also need to project a persona that is not off-putting, but I also don't want to go in the other direction and have a persona that might be accepted by some, as like, okay, oh look at that nice suit he has on. But someone who's who may look at this and say, well, I don't, I don't know if I can trust this guy. He's walking around in a suit. And why are you trying to raise money for me? And you got a two thousand dollar suit on? And you're gonna take my money and buy you another suit? I mean, so all of those things came into my psyche, and it took me not a lot of time, but it took me a while to just to say, you know what? I'm just gonna be comfortable with who I am. I'm not going to try to portray something like I was in high school. I wasn't going to try to put forth a persona of what I think I want you to think I am. I'm just going to be me. And this is the way I dressed before I took this job when I was just me at home. So this is the way I'm addressed in this job.
0: I love that because it's all about being yourself and Mm -hmm. who you are. And if you really know who that person is, it's not hard, right? Let me ask you this, because I just thought of this and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to ask him to do this. So I know you're doing a lot of things here in Louisville and you talk about that mm-hmm. everybody's an artist. So tell me who your artistic expression is, because I kind of know a little bit, but I'd love you to tell the audience, the people who are listening. who well, that.
1: Well, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. I love telling a good story and I've been fortunate to have been able to to articulate those stories in writing. And I've been published, fortunately, through the Courier Journal for Bob Eds. I've written for ESPN. I've written for The Root and The Griot. But one, one of my favorite expressions of my writing was in 2020, right? During the pandemic, my wife and I, we got married in 1990. So 2020 was our 30th anniversary. So I wanted to give her a gift that, you couldn't buy it was something that she would always remember so starting on june 2nd i did a thing and I, as a whole website for this and everything it's called it's called fairytale mixtape and so what i did was i wrote 30 short stories that are based upon our life when we first met so i wrote a story of every year that we were together that was based upon something that actually happened in our lives. And in order to make it interesting for me, I chose a song that we were listening to that year and I had to use the title of that song and a lyric from that song in the short story.
0: Wow.
1: So the story is about a boy and a girl. We know, I never mentioned our name, so it's a fairy tale. So it's a boy and a girl. So the whole story is about a boy and a girl. I did 30 of them and I gave her one every day when she woke up in the morning there was one in her inbox that she got to read and she could listen to the song while she was reading it so that project is probably sort of the most it's probably the most outward expression of my artistic flair if you will of how I was able to take something that was so important to me which is my my wife and our family and then I talked about the birth of each you know what each year when our kids were born so they can go back and they can read this, something about themselves in the year that they were born. And there's different things that have happened over the time. So I had a lot of fun writing those. And it was something that kept me busy at the beginning of the, fa- of the pandemic.
0: It seems like you were leaving a legacy in a yes. beautiful, beautiful way.
1: Well, I'm behind two stories now. So our anniversary is June 2nd. So I didn't write one last year because I started this job on June 2nd. <laughs> And I, I need to write one this year. So I've got two stories that I've got to write between now and June 2nd to keep her gift. Because it's, it's supposed to be the gift that keeps on giving, right? It keeps one every on year. giving,
0: I love it. It's priceless too, it's priceless. <laughs> so let me ask you, when did you know that you became famous? Now, this question, people are like, what do you mean I became famous? I believe, or we believe that everybody has a fame story. And that fame is something to be proud of, as Socrates kind of mentions, and I'll go into that at some other point. But what I want to know is, like, in your personal experience, when did you know you had become famous?
1: Well, number one, I have in my life's work and just in my life, I've been fortunate to have known a lot of famous people and been around a lot of famous people. And my life's work has taken me, I've worked and managed the careers of famous people. So people will see me and think that I am famous because I'm with them. One story in particular, as a basketball player used to play for the University of Louisville, his name is Billy Thompson. And Billy Thompson won the national championship here with the University of Louisville in 1986. Matter of fact, he was on the same team that the current coach who just hired Kenny Payne was on. Well, anyway, back in 1988, Billy came back to Louisville to finish on some of his classes. And he and I were in a class together. And long story short, we hung out that whole summer. He decided to take me to Indianapolis for him to play in Larry Bird's all-star game that he had during that summer as a charity game. So in that game was Michael Jordan, Dominique, well, I mean, like everybody was there and Billy took us with him. So we were with the friends and family. So we got to go everywhere they went. So I'm walking down this line to go from, you know, when they let us out to go into the hotel and they have it all roped off. And there's these little kids who have their cards to get signed. And I see this little kid that they have them lined up by the way that the folks are coming so that they'll sign them for. So I see this little kid at the end of the line, he's going through his thing and he keeps looking at me like, I don't have his card, I don't have his card, who is he? (laughs) So so I I, I always laughed at this little guy was like, man, I I gotta find this guy's card because I know he's in here somewhere. So, right. <laughs> so that's a sort of uh, famous, but not famous. I think it was the first time I saw my name as a byline in the Courier Journal if I'd written something that had gotten published. And then, you know, you hear people talk about it that you don't know. Then they find out that it might be you. And because I've had that happen to me, where people will say, oh, I remember, yeah, you wrote that story about such and such. And so so to have a connection to you with someone you don't know. I've had that happen several times with things that I've written that have been published. In that regard, I guess being famous is that you're recognized for something from someone that doesn't know you.
0: I love that. I love that definition. It's really good because people are always like, They don't feel like they're famous, but I do believe that everybody has a fame story. Mm -hmm. And so what's your belief in that? And I I like that, like when you're published, somebody that comes to you that doesn't know you and says something about you, that's how you can see that. So I'd like to go a little deep into understanding some of the things that you felt were holding you back. At some point in your career, maybe holding you back from taking the job you're currently in. Like, if you think about that, what were some things that held you back from well, doing
1: I've always been a guy that I jump off a bridge and wait for the net to appear. I've never had a problem in taking chances. I think one of the things that I, I learned a hard lesson, because most of my career, I've been a number two. and as a number two, there's a beauty to being a number two, and there's a certain temperament you have to have to be a number two. And to be a number two, there's an unwritten contract between the number two and the number one. The number two says, I'm going to do all the work, and I'm going to make you look good. I'm not going to get any credit for it, but I get to do everything. I get to be involved in everything. I get to be around everything. And I'm going to do it all, and you get to look good. But the real quid pro quo, other than of course the pay, is when all hell breaks loose, I don't get blamed. You get blamed, <laughs> right? So the number one is an asbestos jacket for you. You're not the one that gets blamed. So you have all of this work that you have to do. But you, as a number two, you cannot be a glory hound. You have to let other people take credit for it and not get upset about it. Because I used to have, a, I used to have this thing. When I first got into it, I sort of made this agreement with myself. And I said, if I ended up doing something and someone else got credit for it, and they took credit for it, even though they didn't do it. And somehow or another, they, you know, they got all the shine. If I had it to do again, would you do it again? If the answer to that question is you wouldn't do it again, then you shouldn't do it in the first place. So that was the agreement I made with myself. So number one, as a number two, you can't be about the glory. But you need a number one that's going to protect you to take the risks on their behalf. Now, the thing that held me back in my first, the gap between the leap between being a number two and a number one is monumental. Most people don't realize that. It's a huge leap. And one of the things you have to realize as the leader, leaders don't actually get to do the work because there's not enough time to do it. They don't pay you to do the work. They need you to lead people to do the work. And because I was so used to doing the work, when I first became a leader, I wanted to do the work and it held me back because I could never finish the work because you do it and you get distracted and then you can't give what you've done to somebody else because it's half done. And that was one of the things in taking on this role that I, I had to find for me what I was for other people. I had to find a good number, two.
0: Wow. That's huge. A huge lesson. You know, when I worked at Procter Gamble, I would see my bosses wanting to do my job because they hadn't fully integrated their role. Mm-hmm. And I would get so upset. I'm like, don't you have a job to do? <laughs> don't you have a big job to do? Why do you have to do my job? Right. And so I think that's great that you recognize that, because I think a lot of people don't recognize it and they keep trying to do their old job. We're in this bigger job and they never do it well because they're always trying to micromanage all the things that they use.
1: Leadership's not for everybody. To me, leadership is about vision. It's about painting a picture that people can see themselves inside of and setting it up so that things can be a certain way and creating the direction to bring all of the things together to be moving in the right direction. It's not necessarily about, like, the president of the United States is not doing traditional work. They're not sitting down. Let me finish this spreadsheet and get it to you, (laughs) you know, tomorrow, right? They're not even writing their own speeches. But what they are doing is that they're articulating it to the people who work for them so that they can take that information Give them something that they can react to and say, yes, no, change, and then go on with
0: it. And you have to know what's your role and what's their role. Now, let me ask you this. A lot of us, when we go through some sort of transformation and some sort of change, we always have a mentor, somebody that helps us through these chasms. So who has been a mentor for you?
1: Well, I've had five. I've had five Black men who poured into me. I mean, six include my father. I mean, my father was there for me every step of the way, but professionally, five Black men. So I was snotty-nosed, 28-year-old kid who left the corporate world because he didn't, I didn't see how my daily work was helping anybody's life but my own and the bottom line of the company I was working for. I wanted to be more idealistic and see how directly that the work that I was doing was going to affect the world. So I quit the corporate world, jumped off a cliff, you know, a bridge and went to work for a nonprofit educational foundation, not even knowing how much money I was going to make. It's funny when I accepted the job. So the Lincoln Foundation here in Louisville is an education, nonprofit educational foundation with a very storied history. A friend of mine told me that the president, was looking for a new administrative assistant. Now I wasn't an administrative assistant in a secretary kind of way. It was really like a chief of staff, but it was called administrative assistant. And they said, you'd be perfect for the job. And they're the ones that told me because they used to work there. They said, it's not really administrative assistant. Don't get get hung up on the title. He said, the person runs the office. So I went to him and I said, hey, I want the job. And he was like, man, I can't afford you. You work in the corporate. I said, I don't care. I want to come. I want to get out of there. He says, okay, you, you got the job. So I go home to Cheryl and I was like, hey, I quit my job. I got this other job. And she goes, you did what? I was like, yeah, I got this other She's like, how much money are you making? I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> huh. But what's funny about that is I ended up making less money than I made in my corporate job. But for some strange reason, because of the way they dealt with insurance or whatever, I brought home more money every two uh-huh. weeks. Wow. So yeah. So we ended up getting a bump, but it wasn't on paper. It wasn't. But anyway, he took me under his wing. And after a period of time, he saw how serious I was. And he says, listen, if you're interested, he says, I'm not going to be around here forever. I can groom you to succeed me because he didn't have a succession plan. I said, hey, I'm all for it. And so what he did was, one, he was on like three or four boards. He resigned from the boards. He didn't really resign. He says, I'm stepping aside and this young man is going to take my place. Somehow or another, I got in. I think he has something. I'm almost positive he has something to do with it. So I was, I'm sure he has something to do. I was like, why would they choose me to be 40 under 40, right? I went through leadership role when I was 32 years old. And when he got off of those boards, I would go to the board meetings. His name is Dr. Samuel Robinson. I would go to the board meetings. And when I came back from the board meetings, you know, you have your board book that they give you. He would be in his office and he'd see me come back in the office and he'd say, Come in here. And I'd sit down next to him. He says, Open the book. And he'd say, Okay, let's go through the agenda. And he would ask me, Who was there? Where did they sit? You know, this person doesn't like that person. And this person works over here. And so all of the stuff you can't read in a book and learn in a book. He taught me about what it was like to serve on nonprofit boards and understand governance. And, And he always told me, he says, he says, you have a finance background. He says, so they'll love to have you on the finance committee. He says, and you always sign up for the finance committee because that's where all the money is. And if you're going to raise money out here, you got to know who has the money. So he would tell me that. And I mean, I was like, I mean, I'm 28 years old and he's teaching me this. So
0: so you made a good choice when you left corporate because even though you took the risk of taking that administrative job, it was much more than that. And you got to learn exponentially.
1: So now if you look at business first, 29 year old, 40 under 40, 30, I was the youngest member of my leadership, global cast, 32 years old, me in this position, he looks like a prophet, right? It's like, I told you this young man, but it was all because of him, right? It was all because of him. What anything that I did to deserve being in either one of those, but I tried to do my best to be a good steward of everything he taught me. And I also try to pay that back, pay it forward and work. So I have a, Innate responsibility for the six men who did this for me at different stages of my career to do that same thing, particularly for young black men, because it's important for you to see yourself. It never was a problem for me to see myself in a role like this, because all the men who helped me were at the top of their game. So I had, of course, Went Marsalis is only five years older than me, but he's a world-class. He he's still one of my big mentors. He's a big brother to me. I had um Gordon J. Davis, who was the Parks Commissioner for New York City under Mayor Ed Koch. He was the founding chair of the Jazz and Lincoln Center board. I had Hewlin Fierce, who was on the finance committee for for Jazz and Lincoln Center, who came off the board to be the CEO and taught me things that just could not have learned on my own. I had Aaron Walton, who was the chair of the board for the August Wilson Center when I was in Pittsburgh. All of these gentlemen. Helped me to understand things that you just can't learn in a book. And the thing I love about them the most is because they'd call me into the office to close the door behind me and cuss me out when I, you know, it was like, what the are you doing? You know, you can't, you got blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, and I need this then, and you better get it to me. I'm tired of you, you messing around. And but when the door opened and when other people in there, they were my biggest advocates. But kind of like having a personal trainer, right? The trainer is going to be like,
0: I need 10 more push-ups from you. <laughs> that's so true. I love, I love that. And it suits you so perfectly for the role that you have today. I mean, you were groomed for this role. No,
1: absolutely. I was, when I look back on the road, that's when I looked at the job position here. It was like, I was prepared for this from day one to be in this kind of position. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful. So let me ask you this. Lessons learned. Give me two or three lessons learned that you've had along the way.
1: Now, of course, the first lesson is you can't do the work when you're a leader. You have to empower other people to do the work. Well, I mean, as a saying I say all the time is the, is the world of what not is infinitely larger than the world of what is. We have a tendency to look outside of what's not happening and dwell on that. There's an infinite number of things that are wrong with the world or things we don't have. I can name a thousand cars I don't have, which will make me not appreciate the one that I do have. So one of the lessons I learned is to focus on what is. And And so the other thing I call that is, is that make sure that you squeeze all of the juice out of the orange before you reach for the next one. That was a big lesson for me because it is we just have a tendency to really think about, man, we need this and this is not happening here and this could be happening more over here. It's like, no, what is happening? How are we maximizing? And to be thankful and grateful for what is happening. And it changes your mindset about what it is that's going on.
0: Yeah, it sure does. It does so many things for you. Well, for me, too, especially when I was starting my career, well, my entrepreneur career, let's say that. (laughs) This is, uh, you know, a whole thing on its own. You've been through it too. And you're wanting that big break and you don't realize all the little breaks have like accumulated for yeah. you to have many big breaks. And it's hard to see it until you realize like, wow, you know, I if you look back and you're thankful for those things, you can say, wow, look at everything I've accomplished with these little micro little things that have been happening and accumulating over time.
1: The other lesson I've learned, and I've sort of ruminated on this after reading this book earlier, is like the difference between work and play. So we live in a society that places all of this emphasis on working. So, you know, you ask people, what are you doing? Oh, man, I'm busy. I'm grinding. I'm like, it's as if the thing you do so completely defines you and you need to do more of it to be more of you. So it's this very capitalistic mindset, man. I'm on the grind, man. You know, out here grinding, bro. I'm just trying to get it. I'm lining them up. I'm stacking them up. And so your rest away from work is just to get you geared back up for work. Anyone who's had a loved one, or if you yourself have been ill where you could not work, or if you've had a loved one, I've never met anybody at the end of their lives. Their lives say, "Man, I wish I'd worked more."
0: right
1: right. I wish i got more on the grind more I wish I was not there grinding more man the only thing I regret is that I did not work more and so there's that distinction between work and play and the play is separate from what you actually do on the grind if you and you have to make time for that and you have to make time for your family and you have to make time for just unwinding and spending time with yourself. And so now, one of the things that I've always done, and I figured this out pretty early on in, in my career, is that I find a way to integrate my work in my play. I love to read. I love to listen to music. I love to be in the arts. So I get paid to do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you do. And I see you every time I go out. I'm like, there's Andre doing that's, his that's thing. Not-
1: it's not work for me. My wife and I, we raised our kids, that we're empty nesters. So we were at a chamber music concert last night over over a gentleman's house, and we, it was a parlor concert in the home. It was absolutely wonderful. Now I'm there as the president of the Fund for the Arts and I'm meeting people and, and telling them about what we do. But I also, I mean, if I was still consulting and just working on a project and they had invited me over, I would it would have been complete play. And so is an integration of those two things. In the same way I talk about my dress, I get to be who I am. I don't have to become something else in order for you to see me. I can be who I am in doing what I do.
0: So it's actually not so much work for you. No. Right?
1: This is an extension of who I am. I love that. I still take the time out, you know, with my family and show. But the other thing is I make sure that I, my family is part of what I do. I can't compartmentalize my work away from my family because then it really is work.
0: exactly. So my last question, tell me what is your thoughts or your future thoughts in the next five years?
1: I have some very specific things I want to accomplish in this position, which is to sort of institutionalize a lot of the things that the fund was doing before I got here in terms of equity work. Creating some level of sustainability. I like to see I am an artist just becoming a, a thing that spreads not only through the city, but through the state and the country. That we, Louisville becomes a city of artists that people don't see some level of demarcation between who they are and what they do. That there's time, that's sort of that work play thing, that there's time to do both and you can be a whole person inside of it. I've got a couple of novels that I'm in the middle of. And at a certain point when this is over, I will, you know, just go back to working on special projects at some point. Just special sort of consultant projects like I was doing before I came here.
0: I love it. So tell us, where can we find you? What can we do? Where can we find more of you? Get to well, know I mean, what you're doing.
1: I purposely stay off of uh, uh, social media. So I'm not a big social media. We have a family blog. I don't write for as much anymore as I used to, but my work is on there. It's called educated-guesses.com. My fairy tale mixtape is on there and the other stuff, some short stories I've written. And of course, check out what we're doing at funforthearts.org. If you can, you know, sign up for our newsletter, support us. In terms of finding, not necessarily finding, I mean, I've got some things that I've written in a Courier Journal. You can Google me, Andre Kimo Stone, yes, K-I-M-O if you go and check that out, you'll see some of the stuff that I've written. But most importantly, I want everybody out there listening to this, watching this to say out loud, I am an artist. See what your art is. It doesn't have to be just music, dance, theater, visual, or literary arts. It can be cake decorating, flower arranging, putting your outfit together, needlepoint, whatever it might be. Whatever it is, that's an expression of who you are as a person. What is the experience? the artistic expression of the human condition that you bring forth, claim it, say out loud that you are, and don't let anybody tell you that you're not.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Andre, for being on this show. Thank you for having me. This is an
1: honor. I was like, wow, when I saw that you wanted to be on the show, of
0: course. Oh, oh my God. Every guest I have is so special because they get to talk about their unique qualities and characteristics, and, and I love what you do and what you're doing for the city, and I'm so honored that you're on my show, and I well, will, hopefully, well, you'll be back.
1: Well, I'm honored that you're on my board, and for your listeners out there that don't know, Milka joined the board right at the same time that I began at the fund, and a lot of the work that we're doing in division, mission, value, strategy, I am our brand as we're developing She's been she's rolled up her sleeves and has been there from day one of my tenure helping us. And so you're not going anywhere. I'm not letting you go anywhere. I know I know where you live.
0: Oh, that's great. And I'm so happy to do the work. It's been an honor and it's been incredible incredible work and I'm so excited. And also working with you has been so easy. You get it. You understand it. It's sometimes, you know, you have to educate people on these (laughs) roles, uh, how to think about things. But it's been so, so marvelous to work on this with you. And I'm so excited on what the future will bring.
1: Yes, absolutely. The sky's the limit for what it is. We don't have to ask permission. Let's just go and do it and dream it and make it happen.
0: Love it. Thank you, Andre. And I hope you come back soon. Anytime. Do another one. Thank you for listening to The Brand Therapist. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you'd like to connect with me on social, you can find me at Yamoka Rodriguez Branding, Bespoke Branding Agency, or email me at yamoka at com. Thanks for listening.